morning. It's good to be with all y'all this morning. Uh, I felt a little lonely up there in my pew by myself without all that ruckus that's normally going on by me. Uh, but my wife's still not feeling very well, so just keep us in your prayers definitely over the next several weeks and months as she just continues to deal with a lot of nausea. <clears throat> I hope uh, everyone enjoyed their Valentine's Day. Uh, if, if you didn't or if you haven't yet, men, you're lucky. It felt in the middle of the week, so you have two weekends to sort of figure out, right? If you didn't do anything Tuesday, you could say, oh, I just I thought I'd wait until we were off work and had time. And so uh, time's running out. You know, it's Sunday, so hopefully you guys did something. Um, I'll share just a little bit of – we went to Chick-fil-A on Tuesday because when everything makes your wife feel nauseous and she has a strange craving for Chick-fil-A, guess where you're going for dinner? Valentine's Day or not? That's a, that's a slam dunk in my book. You've you got to get the easy wins. Um, believe it or not, all this really does have something to do with what we're going to talk about this morning, which is showing love, and showing love through our actions, not just saying and talking about love in our words, uh, which is why our title this morning is, in keeping with our theme, it is ministry of love, not just love. Love by itself is, it kind of sounds like a concept, a, a feeling, emotion. Ministry of love, it's clear we're talking about uh, action. We're talking about service. We're talking about actually doing something. For those of you who are in relationships, I want you to think about something for a moment. What would your relationship look like if you never, if you never showed your significant other that you loved them? But you did tell them. You told them. You, you told them with your words. But, and I know there's different love languages, right? For some people, it's words of affirmation. So you like being told you're doing a good job. You like things that make you feel good, that encourage you or uplifting messages. And you might be saying, well, well acts of service isn't, isn't really my thing. But I want you to really think about it. if you never did anything, anything to actually show that you have love and affection for one another. I suspect uh, most, if not all of us, would be single, <laughs> And yet for many of us, this is kind of the relationship we have with, I would say, the church or just people in general. And now some of us, some of us are very good at this and things like writing notes or things like checking up on people, calling people, some of the, the, the little, little things like that. And I'm not just talking about the church, you know, universal, the, the body of believers, which is something we normally talk about when we talk about the church. But I, I want us to zoom in a little bit and think about our congregation, our communities, the hundred or so of us here, the 2,000 in the city, the, the shut-ins who aren't physically here but we would consider part of our body. For many of us, what I described would also be a relationship with God. Well, certainly we talk about our love and our faith in God and we love God and we desire for Him. But what are we doing that shows our love for God? And so this evening in sort of our devotional Bible class period tonight, we're, we're going to dig into what it means to show our love for God. But for this morning, I want to stick with the people side of things. I want to circle back to that for a little bit because I, I do believe that we, we certainly talk about loving one another and we profess our love for one another all the time. But I wonder if sometimes there isn't a disconnect in our actions. And I think maybe there's a disconnect because we've let the world sort of pollute what loving people looks like. I think some of us don't know how to show a love for the church because we really don't know how to, in a scriptural Christian sense of the word, show our love for people. And so our lesson this morning, today, are going to focus on two things, loving people and loving God. 
This morning we're going to talk about the first half of that and this evening the second. We're focusing on these two things because our, Jesus tells us that these are really the two most important things. This is from Matthew 22. From Matthew 22, verse 35, a lawyer asked him to question, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We're going to explore how we can show our love for people. In Galatians 6.10, as we've talked about before, shows, tells us that you know, we, we should especially treat uh, those of the household of faith. It uses that phrase, household of faith, which means if we kind of think about who our neighbors are, well, certainly we ought to minister to those in our household, but we have a responsibility to those outside. If I say your neighbor, that means you necessarily have to go outside of your own house. Now, by all means, just, just as a man first has a responsibility to his family, his own household, as Christians, we first have a responsibility to one another. We ought to love one another. We ought to serve one another. As we've been studying for several weeks now, we ought to minister to one another. But we're also called to love our neighbors, which of course begs the question, well, who really is my neighbor? Turn to Luke 10.25. It's going to be our focus text this morning. From Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we're going to find our story. I, you know, I, the Gospels are actually some of my favorite passages of the Bible to preach out of. We just haven't had a lot of opportunities to do so in just the things that we've been studying since I've been here. As you're navigating there, I'll warn you, you've probably heard this story before. In fact, many of you probably picked up on when I said, who really is my neighbor? You might have thought, I think I know where this is going. We'll find that line begins our story here in Luke 10, 25. I encourage you to listen as if you're hearing it for the first time. To approach it with sort of an open heart, an open mind, as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. From Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this man kind of confronts Jesus. The text says he's a lawyer, but specifically he was probably somebody who argued the law, who debated about the finer points and things like that of the law. And what's funny is this love your neighbor as yourself, is, that's probably one of those phrases we think of in sort of a New Testament kind of way, but it actually does find its, its origins in the law. Leviticus 19.18 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so what they would do when, when discussing how to sort of interpret or understand this law, the, this question that the rabbis and the Jewish leaders would sort of sit around and really pick apart, is they would debate, they would say, well, who really is my neighbor? When the law calls us to love our neighbor, what does it really mean? Who do we really have to love? And I think we, nowadays, often ask, as the lawyer did, who really is my neighbor? 
And a lot of times I think we mean really the same thing the lawyer meant in our passage, which is really just, so who do I really have to love like that? Right? Who, who do I really have to show that level of love to? We, we see this radical, radical example of love that Jesus showed in his ministry. And so we kind of have a tendency to want to put it in a box, right? To, to curb it back a little bit. You say, well, Jesus, that was really fine and good for you. But like, okay, who do I really have to love? We kind of want to fight the level of love, of care, of, of inclusion that he calls us to. And notice what the text says about this man's question, that he was desiring to justify himself. We've had some discussion on past Sunday nights about what the Bible says regarding how Christians ought to treat or interact with people we would describe as living in sin, as, as turned from the church. And I think passages like this ought to cause us to consider our motives. In Luke chapter 10, it's clear, it's clear by the man's question that he, that he wants an answer that will allow him to just keep living his life. He wants an answer that's not going to change him, that's not going to cause him to confront any of his actions or any of his ongoing beliefs. He, he wants an answer that will just allow him to keep doing what he's already doing. And so it uses this phrase, seeking to justify himself. But what's funny is in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, in one of the oft-quoted passages when we talk about this fellowship or this concept... 1 Corinthians 5 says to hand such a man over in order that his soul might be saved. And so when we find ourselves avoiding uncomfortable situations with people, avoiding conversations, avoiding people whose decisions and whose lifestyle can be difficult to handle, and we ask, well, maybe it's right for me just to disassociate with them. You know, it's probably better if I didn't really just go around them or I didn't just really deal with what's going on there. And so I would ask, why are we asking, are they really my neighbor? Are we concerned about their soul and about their salvation? Or, or like the man in Luke, are we really just seeking to justify our pre-existing behaviors and the thoughts and the habits we've already formed? When we read this passage in Luke, it's clear that the man is looking for the smallest definition of neighbor possible. He says, well, as long as loving my neighbor means I only have to love those I already agree with, and I only have to love those who are already in my life, within my social circles, and I only have to love those who I'm ready to fully accept, well, then, then I can really sit back and justify myself when I ignore everybody else. It's really the same idea we actually touched on in Bible class this morning. We talked about preaching the gospel to all men. Because we ask questions like this, most of the time I fear we're actually seeking to draw lines. So that we can say, these are the people Scripture calls me to care about, and I really don't have to worry about anybody else outside of that. And so before we even get to our parable and the actions of the Samaritan, I, I want you to think, whenever we even see questions like this, or we find ourselves asking, well, are they really, do I really have to love them? I would challenge you, are you seeking to justify your own behavior? Or are you concerned for the souls of other people, as Scripture calls us to be? Let's keep reading from verse 30. Again, Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But 
a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Here we really have the, the climax of the story, right? This is the part we know. This is the, the central issue, the, the action of the whole thing. I want us to think about this parable. I want us to think about this man they call the Samaritan. The man who stops and has compassion. Because I want to mention something about the Jews and the Samaritans. You've probably heard this parable before. You've probably heard that there was at least some sort of you know, tension between Jews and Samaritans. You're like, okay, they didn't get along. Oftentimes when we retell this story in modern settings, we, we, we will talk about the parallels between racial tensions today. And they'll say it's really kind of like today. And, and the truth is, yes, there are certainly cities in this country where if, if you were stopped on the side of the road for some reason or another, if we're just being honest, the color of your skin would heavily depend on how much help you're getting of the people driving by and the color of the skin in the people driving by. But the truth is, I would argue that this tension even we deal with today really doesn't go far enough in explaining the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. If I had to draw any parallels to a modern era, I would say it might look like race relations about 150 years ago. Because sometime between the prophets and the Old Testament, the Jews and the Samaritans became very divided. And they both considered themselves the true lineage of God's people. They both thought they were the true followers of God. And, and they disagreed on what sort of texts were holy. They disagreed on where to worship. They disagreed on all these issues that they just thought were, were non-negotiable. So much so, in fact, that about 100 years before Jesus, the Jews got together and they said, you know what, we've got to do something about this. So they burned down the temple that the Samaritans worshipped at. And they desecrated their holy lands. And then, in retaliation, every Passover, the Samaritans would then go and they would start riots over the Passover at the Jerusalem temple. And so take these levels of sort of ethnic racial tensions and then layer onto that this faith where both of them truly think the other is heretical, they are fallen, they are enemies of them. And meanwhile, we are God's chosen people, and so we have a responsibility to really oust them from the world. This would describe... The tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet, Jesus points out to his audience of entirely Jews, it is a Samaritan who stops and helps this man. The Levite and the priest do not. I want to talk about them for a moment. Because they're not just Jews, but they're actually holy men, right? They're, they're the ones that if we were going to say we're called to a little bit higher standard, they're, they're tasked with knowing and keeping the law. We would talk all the time that they were to keep themselves holy as the Lord is holy. They were to conduct the sacrifices and prepare the altars in, in ways that was pleasing to God. And so we would certainly think of all men who are supposed to know and understand the law, of what it means to treat travelers and how we should treat our neighbors, certainly these holy men would get it, right? No. Not quite. I want to read a passage from Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, 6. The prophet says, Isn't this the fast that I have chosen? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and tear off every yoke. Isn't it to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your home, to clothe the naked when you see him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? I read this because I think sometimes we can think of 
actions like this and things like the Good Samaritan and doing for other people and giving food to the hungry and water to the thirsty. It's like, well, those are all the things Jesus says in the New Testament, right? Those are all the new, nice New Testament things. The Old Testament God, well, he's just, he's really angry and he's kind of about the law. Well, actually, no, the, 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 the holy men, the Jews, the priests and the Levites, no, they actually should have known this as well. This is from Exodus 23. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Commands like this are found no less than a dozen times between Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, sometimes saying stranger, other times alien or foreigner, sojourner, traveler. And the idea is the same in all of these, that don't mistreat people passing through your land because you were once in their shoes. You were once people who had to come to a strange land and, and make a living. You were once people who were looked at as foreigners. And really the truth is we don't even have time to get into how that text applies to us this morning. We ought to think about it. But I look at passages like this, and we think about first century Jewish culture and 21st century American culture. There's a few major differences, obviously, that can impact our reading of this story. But as I was sort of breaking down these differences, I actually stumbled on what I think is a striking, I would say shocking similarity. And that is that we've become both very, very good at turning a blind eye to those in need. We have. We're really good about making excuses about it, too. Well, it just wouldn't be safe in this environment. It's, it's just not smart for me to help. But it, I, I guess I just can't bring myself to enable that kind of behavior, that lifestyle. And I have no doubt if I asked them, that the, that the priest and the Levite in this parable, I have no doubt that they would have had reasons and they would have had defenses and they would have had things to say as to why they didn't stop and help this man who was wounded on the side of the roadway. In fact, the road to Jamer from Jerusalem to Jericho was, was notorious for robberies. It was notorious for people being ambushed and waylaid because it was this, this steep, narrow passage through the mountains. And so there was all sorts of places for people to jump out and ambush you and harm you. And so I'm sure they just thought, well, I, I better just be on my way because it's really not safe for me to be here anyway. I have no doubt the Levite and the priest thought what they were doing was fine. But the truth is, at the end of the day, this story isn't about the Levite and the priest and the men who didn't stop. It's about the one who did. It's about the man who, as the text says, had compassion. You know, I'm, I'm from about... Uh, 40 miles outside of Dallas originally. I kind of tell people around the Dallas area because it's easier because none of you have heard of Little Elm. But I've lived, I lived in the city, in, in the city for a decent amount of time. Priscilla's from Tulsa. And one of the reasons I actually I find this area in Lawrenceburg where we were before so charming, so attractive, one of the reasons I want to raise my kids here and I want to, to live here and I want to see them grow up is because really I want to live in a place where people aren't afraid to stop and help somebody who's stuck on the side of the highway with a dead battery or a flat tire. Where I don't have to worry about my kids running up and down the, the street and the next neighborhood over because I know if, if they fall down or they get the wreck their bike or something happens to them, I can, I can know that somebody will stop and take care of them. I can know that the people over there will look after their neighbors. And I'm sure that some of you would tell me, well... You got to be careful around here too, you know. You, you can't just go doing things like that. It's, and honestly, I, I just, I can't really think that way. Because for me, I, 
I have to believe that there is still somewhere in this country where people don't just call themselves Christians, but they actually show the radical kind of love that Christ calls us to have for their neighbors. Where people love their neighbors, even if they're Samaritan, even if they're Jewish, even if it seems like the situation might be a little unsafe and it seems like I'm putting a little bit of myself at risk, even if it means going a little bit and taking some time out of my day. You know, in the parable, it actually says he followed him to the end. He took him to the end. And it says he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He said, Whatever he needs, I got it. Whatever's wrong with him, whatever needs fixing, take care of it, I'll pay the bill. That's the kind of love he calls us to have for our neighbors. And I don't know about you, but I, I have to believe that there is somewhere where people still show this kind of love to one another. And even if it's not true here, I believe it can be. I believe we can be the kind of place where, where, where people and families, they look at our, our town, our area, and they say, man, those are a people who are known for looking after each other. Those are people who are known for taking care of one another, who, who show a radical, extreme, dangerous kind of love for one another because that is exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly how he calls us to be. Something I think a lot about is, I think, what is the identifying characteristic of the Church of Christ? And I think about that two different ways. One, when, when people, you know, anywhere, when they hear Church of Christ, what do they think of? When they think of Christians, what do they think of? And secondly, of course, is in our communities. We live in a small town. If anyone hasn't heard of our, I mean, if, it, if they don't go to our church, our people have heard of our church. And we only got like four of them, right? <laughs> only, you only got a few options in Dover, at least. And so I wonder when, when Joe Bloke down at the hardware store, when he hears about the Dover Church of Christ, what does he think of? What is, what is the number one thing when they say, what is the identifying characteristic of the group of Christians that worship at that location? What is it? And how far down on that list is the love that they have for one another? They shall know you are Christians by what? If people know you are a Christian, how do they know it? What is it about your lifestyle that tells them, man, this, this individual must be someone of faith? Because the Bible tells us what it should be. It tells us what we should be able to put in that blank. John 13, 35, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We bring our lesson to a close this morning. I want you to think about the love we're called to have for one another. For not just the church, not just the people we like, not just the people we know, not just the people who are our second cousin and live down the street from us, so we really got to make sure they're all right. But about our neighbors, about those outside of our household. Because I think if we're being honest and reflective, we have a and I don't want this to sound overly negative because we have a lot of people who do a lot to make sure the other members of this church feel taken care of, who feel looked after, who feel ministered to, who feel cared about, who feel loved. And so I want to challenge us to expand our circle a little bit, to start thinking about loving our neighbors.
Because showing the love of God to other people is one of the strongest weapons we have as a church. Weapons, it helps us fight off against false teaching. It helps defend us from, from worldly influences against all the things out there that are working against us. Because in God, we have victory. We have triumph over the influences of the world. For those who have put their faith and their trust and salvation in God, who are part of the body of Christ, there is the ultimate reward. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you, you made a decision to be a part of that body. Have you made a decision to commit yourself to the work and the purpose of that body? If you haven't, you have the time. If you have any need, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?